good morning. It has been a good morning. It's been a good morning. We ended our service, first service, with uh, Dennis's ordination and a baptism. So who knows what's going to happen? The Lord may say something to you that prompts you to respond in a public way. And if he does, don't be afraid to do that. Well, I'm so glad you're here, and if you're a guest, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for being a part of our service. We're, uh, it's been such a blessing. You know, I mentioned the different locations. It's such a blessing uh, to be able to, to do church and to, uh, to see people blessed. And I just, I just want you to know that <clears throat> about every month or so, I'll get a phone call from uh, churches like the Marmette Church <clears throat> that are struggling and may be ready to close the doors that are reaching out to us to come do something in their area. And so uh, it's always a possibility. Pray about that. Pray about that. And please do keep praying for our, um, our Taze Valley campus. Well, we are in a, in a journey through the book of James, a faith that works. And that's the great thing about James. It's a practical book. And it uh, really highlights the faith that works. It works. Works for us, and it works through us, doesn't it? That word works is a, kind of a double meaning there. It's a faith that works. What would you do without your faith when a trouble or trial comes your way? And we've seen that faith works during those times, doesn't it? We've seen that faith works when temptations come our way. Faith helps you see the deception the devil's trying to put in front of you. Faith helps you see the trap that's being laid for you. If you let your faith work, faith will work for you in trials and troubles and tribulations and every single part of your life. This is a great book. It's a practical book. It's written by the brother of Jesus who was a skeptic before Jesus' crucifixion but became a committed believer after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to him. And if you'll do some study, some research there in the book of Acts, you'll see that James was the critical figure. He was really the key guy uh, who helped the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians come together and form one church. And we, we know that from Acts 15 and on down in some places. So we're turning the page today to chapter 2. We made it through chapter 2. Uh, this is the last Sunday of winter. Am I right? Anybody praying for that? Yeah. Would you like to wake up to 70-degree weather in the morning? I would too, but you'd have to fly to Florida somewhere to get that. But it's coming. It's coming. And we're turning the page to chapter 2 of James. And we're going to let the... This is, this is, by the way, called expository preaching. Expository preaching is when you just let the text tell you what the text wants to tell you. It sets the agenda for you. That's expository preaching. Sometimes we do topical preaching. Next week, for instance, will be a topical sermon, more or less, where we, uh, we make a statement from the Bible, and then we use a whole lot of other scriptures to show you how this theme goes all the way through the Bible. Now, we could do that with the book of James, but we're going to kind of mainly stay in James and let it set the agenda for us today. And here's the outline that it gave us. And my job to figure that out, but here's the outline to get, that it gave us. And, uh, it, it, you know, verse 1, it's one primary command. 
Verse 2, two practical examples. I'm sorry, verses 2 to 4. Verses 5 to 7, three rhetorical questions. And verses 8 to 13, four powerful words. Isn't it cool how it turned out one, two, three, and four? That's pretty cool. Of course, God uh, told me to do that. So you'll know when we're getting done when we get to four. We'll get to four and we'll get to the end of the text. So let's jump right in to James, all right? If you have your Bible or a smartphone or it'll be on the screen behind me, we're going to look at this one primary command to start things off. And I want you to see if you can pick it out in the text, all right? See if you can figure out what is the one primary command. James writes, my brothers, and this is generic, brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So what's the one primary command? Show no partiality. Show no partiality. That's the command. Don't be partial to people. Don't, don't show partiality. If you want a faith that works, you can't discriminate between people that you love or that you treat nicely. And just to be sure we're on the same page, partiality is when you treat a person or a group of people differently, worse or better, just because of something uh, in their identity. It, you treat someone, whether it's their uh, skin color, or maybe it's their uh, economic status, or it might be their position. Or for me, I struggle when I'm driving up and down the turnpike with Ohio drivers. Anybody? I, I want to lay on the horn. I actually want to make up a sign and hold it up in the window and say, this is the left lane. Over there is the regular speed lane or the slower speed lane. But you can't treat people different because of where they're from or what they look like or how much money they have, right? That's what he's saying here. <clears throat> Why? Why can't we treat people differently because of those things? Well, because uh, it does not reflect the character of God. Partiality doesn't reflect God's character. And there is no place for partiality from or among God's people. We read in our focus verse this morning from Deuteronomy 10. What an incredible verse. I don't know if you knew this verse was in here, but it's a cool verse. Uh, Moses is, is establishing that as we start this journey to the promised land, I want you to know who the God is that you're following. I want you to know this God. <clears throat> and he says, the Lord your God is God of gods. And really, he could have said those other gods are just figments of their imagination. They've not done anything. Our God has done many things. And he's Lord of lords. You know, the Pharaoh in those days was called Lord. He was considered a god. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God, and listen to what it says next, who is not what? Partial and takes no bribe. <clears throat> In Romans chapter 2, verse 11, Paul picks up on this, and he simply says, for God shows no partiality. So, in other words, you cannot treat people differently now, you can react differently, but you cannot treat people differently because of who they are. Peter knew this. Paul knew this. But, you know, Peter had a problem with this, and Paul confronted him. 
I don't know how much you remember of your New Testament, how much you remember of your interactions between Peter and Paul, but in the, in the first part of the book of Acts, Peter is the primary leader in the church. He preached the day, on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people came to Christ, repented, and were baptized that day. Well, those were mostly Jews. I would say 95% Jewish people who were there for the, you know, the Passover and all the feasts going on. <clears throat> so Peter, in the first 10 chapters, he's the primary leader in the book of Acts, and really the first Christians were Jewish Christians. And then God converts on the road to Damascus. Jesus converts this guy named Saul, who became what? Paul. And he, he commissioned Paul... He didn't say this, but I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing. He said, hey, Peter's got the Jewish people covered. You go to the Gentile people. Now, Paul was as Jewish as any Jewish person could be, but God commissioned him to go to the Gentiles and preach to the Gentiles. And so he grabbed Barnabas, and off they went on their missionary journeys. Later, he split with Barnabas and picked up Silas, and they, Barnabas went, and Paul went, and they went... And, they converted Christians from the Gentiles. And so you had these kind of these two big groups in the church. You had, you had Jewish converts who were Jewish in all practical purposes. You know, they had been, men had been circumcised. They were still obeying the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, and they were doing all the things. So they had all that knowledge of that history. But you also had the Gentile converts who were starting to interact and come into the church, and they didn't know anything about the Old Testament. They didn't know anything about this God that had been uh, leading his people these last uh, thousands of years. And so they were coming in with the gospel that P uh, Paul preached to them. And if you remember, James is the one in Acts chapter 15 who made it possible for the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians to kind of mesh as one church. James says, hey, respect what we've been through as the Jewish people walking with God for all these years, but we're not going to put the burdens of circumcision and all this heavy law on you you know we just want you to respect our customs and we're going to mesh together james was the one that did that so peter because he was converting jewish christians he hung out with the jewish christians but when they weren't around he hung out with the gentile christians but as soon as the jewish christians showed up peter said well, i got to cut my toenails tonight so i would you know i can't make dinner uh and so he was he was withdrawing. We read this in Galatians chapter 2. Paul says, when Peter, that's Cephas, Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Here's a big coming together. For before certain men came from James, this is our James, he was in Jerusalem, he sent some Jewish converts to, to Paul. Before certain men came from James, he, Peter, <clears throat> was eating with the Gentiles. But when they, the Jewish converts, came, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. In other words, he didn't want to take the criticism, or you shouldn't be hanging out with them. They're not circumcised. They've eaten meat, sacrificed to idols in their life. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So what was Peter doing? He was showing partiality to the Jewish converts and against the gentile converts <clears throat> and you remember if you remember your bible acts chapter 10 god had to shake peter up peter went into a dream and god lowered down a sheet and he put 
unclean animals and clean animals on it. Remember, he, Peter's a Jew, so he wouldn't touch a pig. He wouldn't eat some foods, even that you and I would eat today. We're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. And, and God said, Peter, eat. And Peter said, Lord, I, this is a dream. Peter said, Lord, I can't eat. There's unclean food on there. I can't eat pork. And God said, Peter, what I have called clean, you call clean. I accept the Gentile believers, and you got to accept them too. And it kind of shook Peter up and changed his mind. And so Peter stood up in Acts chapter, uh, the last part of Acts chapter 10, and he said after this incredible vivid dream he had that God said, you better stop being partial. He said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And Paul played a part in turning Peter around. <clears throat> Peter should have known this because this is what Jesus modeled. He modeled this in his ministry. You know, a lot of people in the first century, they didn't treat women right. Women were seen more as second class because just because of the time. Uh, don't get any ideas, fellas. They're smarter than we are, let's admit, <clears throat> most of them. So, uh, and, and so, but Jesus, he... He treated women equally, didn't he, with grace and dignity. And there's lots of instances in the Gospels. And so some enemies of Jesus, the Pharisees, who always wanted to trap him in a question to get turn the people against him or Rome against him, they came to Jesus one day, and Peter was there, and they said, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly. And what's that next phrase? And show no partiality. So... Jesus was known, because he was God, to have the character of God, which says, I'm not going to treat people differently just because of the way they look or where they come from. I'm going to treat them all the same. <clears throat> I'm going I'm to treat them the way they deserve to be treated, which is with the heart of God, with the heart of God. So James is saying it doesn't matter who you are or who you're dealing with. There is no room among God's people for partiality. This plays itself out in discrimination, bias, prejudice, racism. These do not reflect the character of God. <clears throat> Why? Because God loves everybody, right? Every life matters to God. Every life matters to God. It doesn't matter what color. doesn't matter where you're from. doesn't matter what you have in the bank. Every life matters, and he desires that all should come to repentance, that all should come to the knowledge of saving faith. And then, after this one primary command, James gives two practical examples to kind of show them what was going on. Now, you might have heard the story. I bet you've heard it or read it maybe online somewhere about the preacher who had accepted a new church, but before he started at this church... He was going to do an experiment, and he dressed as a homeless person. He uh, behind the behind the scenes, you know, he had his uh, he had his uh, uh, shabby hair over his face, and and uh, he had, he had poured beer all over himself, and he reeked of uh, of stale beer and uh, and smoke, and he was dressed just like a street person. I mean, the worst of the worst. He was sitting outside the church, and uh, people were coming in, and nobody talked to him. 
As a matter of fact, they kind of avoided him. And then after church started, he came in the back, and he was you know, standing in the back for a while, and finally an usher came over to him and asked him what he needed, assuming he probably wants money or you know, he, he wants something from us. And, uh, and you know, he just kind of did, didn't say anything but refused the guy and tried to go into the auditorium to sit down, but he was quickly curtailed by the usher and, and, and taken outside. And, and so he went around the back of the church into the back area and came onto the stage when it was time to preach. And to the horror of the, of the audience, especially those who had walked by him, they thought, what, what's going on here? This homeless guy is, uh, is taking over our stage. And then he slowly began to undress, you know, take off his shabby clothes. He took off his hair and, you know, all the stuff. He cleaned up really right in front of their eyes. And uh, would you say they passed the test or failed the test that day? They failed the test. And he read this passage of Scripture. <clears throat> he read, For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down here on the floor, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So these two practical examples, a rich man and a poor man, come into this gathering, this church gathering, and they do exactly what you do when you come into a place like this, especially if it's your first time there. Or maybe it's a concert, or maybe it's some kind of event you're going to. The first question you ask yourself is, where are we going to sit? Now, if you've been here before, there's no question about where you're going to sit. Are you going to sit where you sat last week? And the week before that, and the week before that, I thought Joel said one of the funniest things I've ever heard him say last week. You know, with the time change, there might have been some people, the 11 o'clock service, this service was full. So uh, we suspect that some 9.30 people maybe missed it or they're like, oh, we're not going to deal with it. We're just going to go to 11 o'clock. And Joel came out and said, boy, I barely made it out here. The security team told me there were some people fighting over the same seats. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> But we are creatures of habit, aren't we? We can actually take attendance almost by where people sit, if I could only remember, but I can't. But uh, th these two guys, they want to know, where are we going to sit? Where, what are we going to do? Where, where are we going to land? And so uh, they both wanted a good seat, but the ushers said to them, no, 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 rich guy, you come on up here, you can have the best seat, which today would be in the back row, right, in the church, be the back seat. Front row's wide open. But, but for the poor guy, he came in and they said, um, you stand over in the corner, try to stay in the shadows, or you can sit in the floor. You can sit in the floor. That's called partiality. This is the example that, uh, that James is using here. Now, in the, in the first century, there was no middle class. Here in America, there's a middle class. Most of us are in the middle class. We're in, some of you may be upper middle class, some of you may be middle middle class, some of you may be lower middle class, but middle class really is another description for the word working class. You know, we're the people that get up and work. Aren't you glad for the person that gets up to go to work in your house? If you're glad, raise your hand. Amen. Keep doing it, honey. Keep good, bringing home the bacon, right? 
keep making some money. Now, you may be retired, so you don't work now, but you did. You put in your time. You got up. You went to work because you had to pay the had to pay the bills. You had to pay the bills, and, uh, and, and hopefully you could set a little bit aside for Myrtle Beach later in the year, right? Can I hear Myrtle Beach? Any, you know, that's West Virginia too, right? West Virginia South. And, uh, and you, could, you could save a little money. You know, essentially you could, you could give first, and you could save second, and then you can live on the rest. That's kind of what we practice here. And so we're blessed. And when it, when it comes to our social or socioeconomic status in the world, I want you people to know we are, we're rich. We're rich. You know, if you go to Haiti, I'm not sure there's a middle class in Haiti. And some other countries may, may be the case too. There's people scraping to survive and eat every day. And they don't know what they're going to eat tomorrow until that day comes and they go after it again tomorrow. And then there's some people who, they, you know, they've, they've, they own the stores and they got the money and they're driving the big cars over there. But it, it kind of more like the first century. There was no middle class. So it was very easy to tell in the, in the first century when that guy came in the door, it was very easy to tell which class he was in. And so when they saw him, they said, we got to give him a better seat. And they did this because... They thought maybe, why do you treat rich people better than you treat poor people? You thought maybe they're going to give me some. Maybe something will fall out of their pocket, and I'll be there to pick it up when it happens. So now understand that James is not saying that you should treat everyone the same. Don't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying treat everybody the same. That's not what he's saying. For instance, sometimes I'll go to a store and I'll see a sign that says um, handicap parking right up front. I don't park there. I don't park there because that's, that's for those who need that. Or I might see police parking. I definitely don't park there. Or maybe you've seen veterans. You've seen a sign that says for veterans or service personnel. I will park there occasionally. And sometimes you'll see uh, young mothers. I've seen, I've seen stores with uh, young mothers or pregnant mother, pregnant women. And nobody has a problem with this, do we? We know that we should treat them a little bit better because of their condition and let them, you know, have the closer spots. And we'll park over there in the city lot or something. And, and so he's not saying treat everyone the same. He's, he's saying... Uh, give honor to whom honor is due. You know, if the, if the governor or the president or somebody showed up to church, we would probably treat them a little bit differently. You know, we'd kind of protect them and give them a good seat. The Bible says honor the king. The Bible says in Romans 13, 17, give honor to whom honor is due. Proverbs 3, 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. You know, in, back in 1965, Lyndon B. Johnson put into law, signed into law, something called affirmative action. Affirmative action for you young folks, it, it, was, it was an attempt in the 1960s to make sure that people of color or people of, uh, you know, of, of different descents got a fair shake in the university's admission 
process and then getting hired in jobs and, and other things. <clears throat> and the problem with affirmative action is, is sometimes it goes too far and then it reverse discriminates against the people, uh, you know, who, who it, was, it, was, it was trying to protect a certain group and then it ends up actually discriminating against the group it was, you know, it was made for and all this. So uh, it's, it's not a bad thing, but the sad thing is that it had to be instituted in the first place that we live in a culture where people treat other people different because of where they came from. And so this, there's never a place for this in the church. And so what he's saying here is that, look, don't treat people who have money better than you treat normal people because the love of money, the Bible says, is a root of all kinds of evil. And if we think that we're going to treat people with money better then we are showing partiality. This is an example, rich and poor guy. And then he asked three rhetorical questions, and we're headed to the finish line here soon. Three rhetorical questions he asked. The text is telling us this. And a rhetorical question is a question that already assumes an answer, right? That's what a rhetorical question is. And you don't have to answer it because I'm not asking you to answer it. I'm asking you to make a point with it. That's what James is doing here. That's called a rhetorical question. It's a question that doesn't need an answer. I already know the answer. I'm making a point. So here's the questions. <clears throat> Listen, my beloved brothers. First question, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? What he's saying here is that God, go back to that question. What he's saying here is that God did not, he did not show partiality when he offered you the gospel because you're all poor. Church was made up of mostly poor people in the first century. So hasn't God chosen everybody? We know the rich can, we know the rich can uh, hear the gospel, although Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven because of his wealth. But the answer is yes, God has chosen the poor. And the second question, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? You see, the, if you had a dispute with someone... If they were rich, they could hire a lawyer, but you couldn't afford a lawyer. So they're going to win the case because they got a lawyer. And he says, are, are, are these people that you're treating and giving the best seats in the house and being all lovey-dovey to, aren't they the ones who are dragging you into court and oppressing you? Uh, well, yeah, you're right. But maybe they'll put some money in the plate. The third question, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And the thing there is that there were a lot of rich people. You know, it's historically true that poor people see their need for Jesus a lot sooner than rich people. That's why Christianity in America is so hard to pull off because we're so rich. We don't need God. There are a lot of people, I'm not talking about you necessarily, but as Americans, we're so independent that we don't see the need for God until it's a 911 call. God, my daughter's sick or my, my son was in an accident or somebody's dying or something like that then we kind of call god and put him there but i'm, I'm talking about americans now i'm not talking about you because you're here you see the need for faith you fought through your your wealth you have fought through your affluence to see a need for god and so but most people in america it's hard to reach him because it, you know why do i need god you guys are all fighting anyway why do i need god so the people in the first century were kind of the same way. They didn't need this religion, so they were making fun of 
the Christians. They were making fun of Christ. You mean that poor guy who was killed for his crimes? You're following him? And so that's what James is referring to here. And so these questions were asked to highlight the hypocrisy of these believers who were mistreating the very people. They were mistreating the very people who were just like them, really. There was no difference. And they were treating with partiality. They were being partial to the rich people. And this was hypocrisy. And there's no place for it from or in the church. So James wraps up this section with these four powerful words. I'll give you the words. Love, law, judgment, and mercy. See if you can hear them. Verses 8 to 13. If you really fulfill the royal law, that's really love. According to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. I like this next verse. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. We're talking about partiality here. And when it comes to how we treat people, other people, rich or poor, black or white, brown, red, yellow, all are precious in God's sight. When it comes to how we treat them, love should rule the day. Amen? That's why our vision statement is love God. That's the greatest commandment. Love people. And that's what James says here. He, he heard Jesus say this. He was in the crowd when Jesus was saying these things. He said, this is the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat everybody with kindness and with the love of God. Now, again, give honor to whom honor is due, but in your heart, treat everyone with the kindness and respect and love of God. This is the royal law. 1 John 3.16, you know John 3.16. 1 John 3.16 is really very similar, but it kind of turns it around a little bit or extends it. By this we know love, that he has laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he laid down his life. John, 1 John 3.16, you ought to lay down your life. In other words, be willing to love them like Jesus and like God loved us. And what about law? What about law? James says, if we think we're better than someone else because our sins aren't as big as their sins, in other words, we, you know, when you're driving down the road and the police pulls you over and you're going, let's say, uh, 74 and a 65 or something, he pulls you over and he comes up to your window and he says, hey, you're speeding. I'm going to give you a ticket. You can't say, yeah, but I didn't rob a bank or I didn't kill anybody. I mean, you ought to let me off the hook because I didn't do any of those things. All I did was speed. What's he going to say? Well, young lady, speeding is also against the law. Speeding against, against the law. Driving slow in the fast lane ought to be against the law. 
And it might, it might be, depending on the speed. So what he's saying is, we all have broken the law. None of us outside of Christ can stand any closer to the cross than anybody else. Where would I be without your love? Love that song. And because we're all sinners, we deserve judgment. We deserve judgment, don't we? We deserve punishment because we're all sinners. But what we really want is mercy. We want mercy, don't we? Mercy is a great word. It's a powerful word. Sometimes we define grace as getting what we don't deserve. We get what we don't deserve. I mean, we, we don't deserve it, but it kind of falls in our lap. I was telling the first service, we were at the ball games this week at the state tournament, and Jameson, every time they were shooting the, uh, the red shirts out, you know, Jameson was reaching, and he actually had a hold of one, but another guy had a hold of it too, and he did the right thing, gave it to him. But this lady sitting next to us, she was sitting there on her phone, and as hard as Jameson reached to get it, this shirt fell right in her lap. She didn't deserve that. She wasn't going after it, but she got it. She got it. That's what grace is. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Some people have described it as God's riches at Christ's expense. You get the benefit. He paid the price. That's grace. And mercy then is not getting what we do deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve punishment. We deserve judgment. Ephesians 2 says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so this is how we're to treat one another. Jesus told a story in Matthew chapter 18 about a man who owed a debt that he could not repay. It was, I mean, the, the number of 10,000 uh, I think it's 10,000, um, I forget the term there, the coinage. But anyway, it's a debt. I did the math. He could not repay it in a 1,000 lifetimes. And he begged his master to forgive him. And the master said, okay, I, I understand you got a family. I see who you are. I'm going to forgive you. And he forgave the debt. And this guy was just forgiven of a debt he could never in a 1,000 lifetimes repay. Jesus is telling the story, and he said this guy who was forgiven of the debt, goes and he's talking to a friend of his, and he said, hey, don't you owe me money? The guy said, yeah, but it's not that much. I'll repay it. I'll give it back to you. He said, no, you're going to pay it back now, or I'm going to have the police come and arrest you and put you in jail. The guy couldn't pay it right then, so he had him put in jail. And some people were watching, and they knew the guy's situation. They went to the master and said, didn't you forgive him this unimaginable debt? He said, yeah. Well, he just had his friend put in prison for this little bitty debt. And the master was like, this is not right. I'm not happy about this. And he pulled the guy in. And this is what he said to him. He said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And so this is kind of the established way how we should treat people, regardless of who they are, where they come from, think about how good God has been to you. Has he been good to you? Amen, he has. Almighty God, thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. 
Thank you, God, that you give us what we don't deserve. You treat us in a way that we don't deserve. But we have the opportunity to hear the gospel and to be saved. Thank you for that. And, Lord, you give us mercy. You don't punish us because Jesus took our punishment on the cross. You don't punish us. And we're so grateful that you've done that. Lord, I just pray today that if there's one or two or more here in this place this morning who haven't realized the immense gift that you have given, the, the great love that you have shown through the cross, that they would come to that acknowledgement today and they would name you as their Savior, that they would, they would accept this free gift that you have for them. And, Lord, I pray that they would make their way up front right now to talk about what's their next step. How do they confess their sins? How do they repent? What does that look like? What about baptism, and what does that do? And, Lord, what's, what's a life look like after that? I pray, God, that you would, you would lead us to the cross right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Stand with me, and let's sing this last worship song.